Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast and we are going to go very local. But John wants to go to China, so we're going to go to China first. <laughs> then we're going to... How are you, Ed? I do Ed? want to go to how China. How are you, Ed? I'm good. I'm good. You do want to go to China, don't you? I you do. Were, you were intrigued about the visitor of the Chinese Prime Minister here. Prime Minister Li Kuang. But what was interesting about that is that he came all the way to Europe, went to Davos, gave his speech in Davos, and then came here, came to Dublin, flew into Dublin, and nowhere else. Why yeah. was that? Because we're going to do a deal with the Chinese. For beef. Look. The history of Ireland is, and it's a very strange thing, is that we use neutrality to stand for nothing, mm. right? Neutrality, we bring, you know, we stand for this, that, and the other, but neutrality is also used to stand for nothing. Right. That it's expedient all the time. This is another example. So Mickey D will be shouting and roaring about the Uyghurs, and at the same time the government will do a deal with the Chinese on beef. That's just the Irish way, and it's, it's, it's not honourable. Yeah. It's not even respectable. But I think as you get older, you realise that's what this country does. Well, absolutely. They look after the farmers. Well, precisely. And uh, I I know that's not not fair to say, got to look after farmers. But it is about... But it's an expedience. So I think, you know, sometimes in Ireland, we have this sort of self-righteous idea that we are neutral and we are neutral because it's an elevated state and we don't take sides. And you know, I've always said you've got to take sides. Mm. You know, in every scrap, you've got to take sides. Because not taking sides normally, normally facilitates the aggressor, whether you're in a school, playground, or whether you're in geopolitics. But we don't take sides and it allows us to be expedient. So I think there's an, a type of thinking in the Department of Foreign Affairs mm. and the Department of Finance, which says, for the last 40 years we were the gateway drug for Americans into Europe, right? Maybe for the next 40 years, we'll be the gateway drug or hub for Chinese into Europe. Mm. Chinese factories, Chinese business, Chinese money, etc. And because we're not in NATO, we are not hidebound by the United States. And I think this is what's going on. It's a strategic play to position Ireland as a friend of China in order to actually garner Chinese money and Chinese investment over and above other countries. That's what I think is going on. Well, do do you know what I think then maybe what we should be doing is 
like what they did in Tanzania and East Africa, and is get the Chinese to build a proper railroad and and infrastructure. Okay. For cars and and uh, and trains. As we were talking about Javier Millet the other day, run that past the trade unions. <laughs> and see how far you get. <laughs> Run that past the Department of Transport and see yeah. how far you get. Yeah. Remember, you know, Malay is talking about vested interests blocking development. Yeah. That's one. Now, speaking of development, John, see what I did there? Right. Let's talk about Daenerys. Yes. Let's get from the hyper-global <laughs> to the pathetically micro-local. No, because all economics starts at a micro-level and then you build up to the macro. Yeah. And I've been watching this ongoing scrap in Dunleary between what I would call the future and the past. So it's over a plan that the corporation has to reduce cars in the town, liberate the streets for pedestrians, for bicycles, for hanging out, and try and create what they call a living town with living streets. Now, the reason this is important is because Dunleary is a microcosm of almost every single town in every single Western country. And the reason it is, we had a urban policy, an urban planning policy, since basically the advent of the car. In Ireland, it was about the 60s and 70s, because people really didn't have cars before that, right here, which was basically to genuflect to the car as the main mode of transport. Now, in the United States, there's enormous evidence that that was entirely driven by the car industry. We in Ireland, we went along with British and American ideas of urban planning, they had car industries, so it made sense for them to be pro-car. We didn't have any car industries, and yet we were. And so you have a situation where towns and cities in Ireland are entirely choked up by cars. There's an amazing statistic, John, about the amount of time Irish people spend in cars. It's an index called hours lost in traffic, right? Dubliners lose 114 hours a year in traffic. In Galway, they lose 94 hours a year in traffic. Now, these are fourth and seventh. Now, think about the size of Galway. It's tiny. Sir, I'm, I'm still back with 140 hours. That's how many weeks work? That's that's days and days in the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But think about the size of Galway. It's the seventh worst offender in car congestion in Europe and it's the size of a small village in the UK. Yeah. If you're in England, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's tiny. It's tiny. Why? Because we have driven our entire urban planning around cars. Now, the council in Dunleary, in fairness to them, are saying, hold on, enough of that. And what they are really, I think, is locked in a battle between the future of towns Mm. and the past of towns. The past of towns is the car lobby, nimbyism, and no change. And the future is trying to liberate the streets from the tyranny of cars. Yeah. Now, it's not to say the cars have not been an amazing thing. Cars have been an amazing innovation, getting us from A to B, changing our world. I've always thought, of course, yeah. during COVID, I think what really got in on top of a lot of people was this idea of not being able to move. And I think actually to move is to be alive. Humans want to move. We want to move all over to the place. interact with and the, other and, people and the world. And, and the car was an amazing thing. It yeah. opened up huge parts of our countryside to people who'd never before seen it, right? And it allowed people to commute and live all over the place. But there is no manual for urban planning in the 21st century that says more cars are a good idea, right? Yeah. This is why I call the movement People Before Bonnet. 
right? Okay. <laughs> so you know those people before profit. I like that, Mark. You know our Trotskyite <laughs> Marxist makes the people before profit? Well, this is people before bonnet, right? <laughs> that basically people should be given precedence on the streets over and above the bonnet of cars, in particular SUVs, which have very large bonnets, right? Yes, yes So you walk, you walk up the town here, and again, I'm speaking about Dunleary, but think about your own neck of the woods, wherever you're listening from, whether you're listening in America, in Canada, in Britain, other parts of Ireland, think about what's happening in your own locality. So what you have then is a planning view, cars versus no cars. Now, what is fascinating there's a thing called the Iron Law of Traffic, John. Mm-hmm. And the Iron Law of Traffic is the following, which is that if you widen roads and if you build more motorways and dual carriageways and whatever, right, and you think that this is going to create less traffic, the opposite happens. It creates more traffic, right? And it's this idea that you build it and they will come. Yeah. So what we see all over the world is if you build more roads, people buy more cars and they use cars. Mm. Now, the irony, therefore, is that we like to think of roads when we imagine traffic, right? If you imagine traffic, you think of it as a liquid. So you widen the road, more liquid can flow through. But what actually happens in reality, John, is it behaves much more like a gas, whereas the gas will actually move to fill up the space. So what happens is if you create more space for cars, You'll get more cars. Yeah. It makes yeah, complete yeah, sense. Yeah. And again, the bizarre thing is environmentally, this is a disaster. Socially, this is a disaster. And it's only good for the individual in the car, right? Whereas the collective, and this is goes back to our whole idea of economics, is what is good for the individual is not always good for the collective. Yeah. And what you have in a place like Dunleary is you don't have any street life. And what the council are trying to do is create a much more pleasant street environment, which, if you know anything about Dunleary, they've done on the on the seafront over the last few years which by opening fun. the whole thing up. Yeah. You know, just a slight aside, I was speaking to a fellow over Christmas, an older gentleman. An older gentleman, And yes. we were talking about Dunleary and stuff. Dunleary started going downhill when they changed the name from Kingstown. No way. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's extraordinary. Serious? And he was serious about it. <laughs> But actually, it's funny you mentioned demography, and it's funny you mentioned generational differences. It seems to me quite clear that the row here is between different generations. Yes. There is older people want to stay in their cars. They want to drive through Dunleary and use it as a rat run into town. Mm. And they feel very discombobulated or disaffected that that rat run has been closed down. Now, I can understand that. I can really understand that feeling. If you've been doing this all your life, but... Personal disaffectation is not the same as urban planning. You know, you have to actually have some plan for the place. Absolutely. I know, as you mentioned earlier, this is quite local. It's hyper-local, but it's it's applicable to you and I grew up in in this town, and there was the experiment last year of closing off the main street. Yeah, which worked really well. uh, Pedestrianised. And it worked really well. And the reaction to that was really positive as well. But then they took it away. Again, I think... What goes on here is an inability to push through one initiative. Mm. So it's 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 called local democracy. You have to genuflect at this and that and the other. And I think it's fair enough, right? But as you said, it would have been much easier after COVID, just leave it in place. Yeah. But I mean, what 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 we're talking about is Dunleary, but we're talking about the same for Dublin City. Yeah. Dublin City needs to figure out how it's going to breathe in the 21st century. Is it going to be a city which is clogged up by cars? 
or is it going to be a city that has a better public transport system and as a consequence of a better public transport system has less cars? Now, it's an interesting thing about public transport because Ireland opted for buses years ago, right? Mm. The problem with buses is they compete for space on the road with cars. And even though buses carry far more people than the cars, they are treated equally on many roads that don't have bus lanes, right? Now, it's a bizarre situation, John, about traffic and congestion in Ireland, which is the following. If you look at house prices around Ireland, the mo- not about Ireland, everywhere. Mm. Some of the most expensive houses are houses with sea views. Yeah. But there's only a certain amount of houses that can have sea views in any city. So what happens is more and more people want to buy them, the price of those houses goes through the roof. So the way in which we ration the availability of those houses is through the price mechanism. Mm. But we don't do that in cars. So there's no pricing on any roads here. So therefore, the way we ration road space at rush hour is we basically say it's a free-for-all and you just have to wait your turn. Yeah. Now imagine we applied the same economics to road pricing as we do to house pricing. So we said, what is most desirable on the road? It's to drive between, let's say, half seven in the morning and nine mm. in the commute. So grand. But it's also the time when roads are most congested. So why don't we do the following? Why don't we actually change road pricing? And you can do this with technology. So you have like a surge pricing with Uber, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is basically if you want to drive at times when everybody else wants to drive, like if you want to buy that house that everybody else wants to buy, Mm. we're going to increase the price. So you have a road tax, which is not flat, but it's based on use. So at the moment we have a road tax. Everyone pays road tax, right? No matter whether you use your car, whether yeah. you don't use your yeah. car. No matter whether you use it in the city or in the country. No matter whether you use it at Russia or not at Russia. Imagine we had a road tax based on surge pricing. So you pay in order to drive at those hours where it's congested. And you don't pay at other times. What you would find then is people would change the way in which they commute, the way in which they use their cars. And of course, we can do all this now with working from home. There's no compulsion for everybody to get into the car at half seven in the morning. But that's only a certain group of people. Then there are the people who are, you know, in their vans, doing deliveries. Oh, yeah, but I mean, Do, in you your know, vans is different. And, you know, I'm, talking about commuters. Just, I'm talking about commuters. Sure, you know, sure. people who basically, and you can identify that. BMW drivers. BMW drivers. Those people in <laughs> particular, John, are the BMW Jeep drivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I've always said is the ratio is eight stone of human to 200 stone of metal. <laughs> That's the ratio of the car to the human. But I mean, basically what you have is this idea that if you want to drive at those times, you pay for it. And I think that would change the way in which the roads are congested. But the overall idea is we need to reconfigure how towns feel, how we live in towns. Which is funny, you know, Mam is in a nursing home. Yeah. What she loves more than anything else is going for a drive. And I drive her up the mountains and stuff, but she also loves driving in around the city. Yeah. And in around Deliri and we go into town and all that kind of stuff. And sitting, she loves a good traffic jam. <laughs> but uh, she loves just to sit there and look at other people and all that kind of stuff. But she you, loves a traffic jam. I love that. It. She loves it. But there's loads of you building in around Stillorgan and Black Rock and all that kind of area. And she always points at those and goes, look, you know, there's so much building 
it's going to make the place very busy. <laughs> I and, I, and I said, yeah, yeah, but the whole idea, ma'am, is to kind of get people out of cars and into public transport. Why would you want to do that? I love it. Well, she's from the generation that cars exactly. are a big luxury. Exactly. But there's also loads of people around the country that don't have public transport. So cars are absolutely essential Absol- yeah. for Ireland to get around. But in towns, they just don't work. Yeah. And they affect the quality of all the planning if you become car-centric. So when you're talking about planning, it's not just about cars. It's not just about no. congestion. I think they use the word, John, holistic. Is the word. Holistic, Holistic, yeah. exactly. The whole shebang. So let's get more into urban planning. Grant. And, and what is required cool. to make the whole thing work. After this. 
And then it was totally denuded of population after nine o'clock. And then you had a sort of a ghettoized culture of drinks and clubs and restaurants. But that was only from people who came in from the suburbs and then went out again. Well, actually, my mother also goes on about the Three Mile Pub. Which is a great idea. Three Mile Limit, where they would drink in O'Neill's and that the pubs would close at 10 o'clock and they'd all pile into their cars and drive out to, you know, the Goat or or somewhere like that for a few more pints and then drive back into Yeah, town. because the pints, the pubs were open. So, yeah. so I'm reading, John, as you can see, this is a very old book, right? It is, yeah. It's called The Economies of Cities by Jane Jacobs, who's also the author of The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And this is basically about what happened to American cities yeah. In the 1960s. It's published in 1967. So around the same age as you and me, Squire. Right. And it's got, it's very old and it's very yellow. But it's a fascinating book and it's actually absolutely relevant to what's happening now. Because Jane Jacobs, who you know I'm a fan of, was a great urban planner. She was a normal person, not qualified in urban planning but saw what was happening to American cities with the arrival of the car and the destruction of cities. And she set about becoming this expert on urban planning Mm. with no qualifications. And all she did was she just looked at cities and watched how they actually grew and how they worked. And she had five basic ideas for towns and cities, right? And her first basic idea is that the town is an ecosystem. So the city is an ecosystem. And by that, she meant there were shops, there were buildings, there were residential, there was commercial, there was retail, there were cafes, there were bars. And the interesting thing is they all synthesized together. So the city was like a living organism and bits of the city fed off other bits of the city and at certain times of day it was lively Mm. and certain times at night it was lively. And so what it was, when she looked at the entire sense of a city as being almost like a rainforest, that all bits actually affected other bits and there were feedback loops within the cities. So you couldn't just look at one street and say, we're going to change this street. You had to look at the whole. And this was a very new way of looking at cities because in the past, again, because of cars, if you decided that the role of the city was how do I get from A to B quickest, what you were much more likely to do was therefore use the city as a rat run as a transit from A to B and give over loads of space to the car. And in so doing, elbow out the pedestrian. And once you elbow out the pedestrian, you elbow out life. Mm. And if you look again, we go back to remember we talked about Ulysses years ago. The whole idea of Ulysses, it's very funny about Joyce and Dublin. Ireland spends a fortune on the Joyce industry talking about Ulysses at Bloom's Day, we forget the idea that Bloom walked around the city all day. And what he was doing was he was observing the life in the city, in the bar, in the caban shelters, in, you know, at the funeral, you know, at at, at Dignam's funeral, all walking around. So Dublin was a very, very walkable city a hundred years ago. Then the car arrives, it all changes. So the first thing about Jane Jacobs, and I think it's a really interesting point, is that a city or a town, whether it's a small place or a big place, is a living, breathing ecosystem. And therefore, if you affect one bit, like you change this, it's going to have a ramification over here. And you're not too sure until it's actually happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you've got to look at the city as something that continues to grow and grow and grow. And I don't mean grow as in sprawl. 
I mean grow as in being full of life and being full of vibrancy. And her idea was that, you know, the footpath is the most important avenue in the city. That what happens in the footpath, that who's on the footpath, at what times of the day is actually the life of the city. And I, she called it the great ballet of the footpath. That people mm. kind of come in, they dance in a certain area, and they move in a certain area, and then they move away. And I, I think that's actually the way in which cities work. And again, traditional planners don't see that because they were captured by cars. Now, it's changing. But if you look at Dublin City, you're right. I mean, Dublin at night, it's a kind of touristy city. And I even talk about us being tourists, going in, going to restaurants, going well, out. That's it. I, I, I don't really go into town much anymore. I go into a gig only because the gig is in town. But, you know, I, I would socialise locally. Yeah. But part of the problem and the upshot of the emptying out of the streets of Dublin is that it becomes a little bit more dangerous and a little bit more edgy. You're absolutely right. And and with a lack of police, you know, there's um dereliction of the streets. Dereliction and vandalism. Now, you're absolutely right. So Jane Jacobs had this great expression called eyes on the street. Mm. And she meant that the more the street is living, the safer it is. Because we are actually witnesses. So yeah. more people on yeah. street those streets are safer, which means you have to have people living there. Now, what we've done in Dublin is we've converted huge amounts of apartments into Airbnbs. Yes. So we've created yeah, a tourist yeah. city. Yeah. But the tourist city has elbowed out the local people. Yeah. And you can't have a city based on overpriced pints of stout, yeah. diddly eye, and tourists, and Airbnb. Well, also tourists come to see the city and experience the city, which includes locals. But the point is you're elbowing <laughs> yeah. out the locals. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think exactly. I think a big change for Dublin has to be some sort of regulation about Airbnb. Mm. Because you cannot, because when, when you give over so much of the city to short-term lets, what you do is, A, you elbow out capacity for the city's yeah. actual residents, and B, you push prices through the roof. Yeah. Because how can you compete on a week-on-week basis with an Airbnb where somebody's going to spend, you know, for the weekend, they're going to spend a fortune. So again, the idea is that planning needs to see the totality of it, right? The living city idea. But but let me let me ask you about planning then, because, you know, Dublin has been planned over years and has evolved over the years, and it is what it is now. How does a planner go about kind of re-engineering the whole city well, and replanning the whole you've city? You've got to just change the way in which... Cars are used. You've got to change the way in which nimbyism is addressed. So, for example, in the case of Dublin, you know, this idea of, oh, Dame Street, we can't close it, we've got to keep it up. You've got to do what other cities do, just close it off to cars. And the amazing thing, again, is, as I said, it will adjust, people's behaviour will change. But if you just keep it and you just allow the market, John, Mm. to answer everything, you'll just get chaos. And you'll get chaos because people say, well, why should I give up my car? And the reason you should give up your car is because the community, everybody else suffers. Now, again, to go back to Jane Jacobs, she talked about the essential idea that cities have to be mixed development. Yeah. So again, you can't just have, as we have in Dublin, an industrial zone, a residential zone, a retail zone. And there's many, many people who would say that a total disaster for cities is having actual shops on the ground floor, always and exclusively, because people might not necessarily want, in an online world, people might not necessarily go to shop. 
You might want a cafe. They might want something else. Yeah. But the idea is you need to have it entirely mixed. So you've also old and young. So if you think something like Temple Bar, right? Mm -hmm. It's exclusively for young people on the skite, right? Yeah. It's very... It's, it's like Leicester Square in London. Like Leicester so, Square. So, the, But the idea is if you don't have old people and young people living together, what you will have is just simply people just drinking at one time at night yeah. and that's it, right? Whereas if you've got old and young people, older people come on the street in the day, they tend to chit-chat a lot and then they kind of leave the street at night and then younger people come in. It's that whole idea that as long as you have mixed development, as long as you have lots of different types of people, mm. you will create this environment which is conducive to city life. And that's the way old cities used to be. But to make that happen, it's it's almost like chicken and egg at this stage because you you need to attract people in this 15-minute city kind of idea where you kind of live and work and, you know, bring a rear your family and educate yeah. and socialise all in within 15 minutes of, of where you live. But how do you attract, how do you get that moving? How do you, you start you build, that? You build, you build, you subsidize housing because it's too expensive. But you need businesses in there as you well. You need businesses as well, but people bring businesses. People bring businesses. And mm. again, what Jane Jacobs goes on about is the, is the absolutely essential nature of local and small businesses in cities. Yeah. Particularly in the streetscape. So what we've tended to do in Ireland is we have this model of development is we've no capital, so we're going to build a big factory. And then people will commute to that factory and yeah. commute away from that factory. You know, like, like an Intel fab or a, the great example is the Silicon Dock, you know, Google and all those ones. Yeah. Just build that place. People come in, they go out, they come in, they go out. And what she says is, no, you've got to build local businesses which service the community, which produce and create products which people want to buy. And again, it's very, very difficult to predestine that. But I think it has to be your overall idea is that small artisans, trade people, mm. you know, punters like ourselves doing podcasts have studios in the city rather than out in the suburbs. That's yeah. sort of idea. So we're around doing our thing. I mean, that's, again, one of her big ideas is that planning has to come from the bottom up. Right. You talk to the locals. What do you want? What mm. do you think's going on? So you talk to people in Francis Street, you talk to people in the Coombs, and what do you actually want? And get their feedback rather than some as our friend Millet would say, bureaucrat in a plush office. Yes, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. moving things around. And I, and I think, you know, I've always thought that one of the problems with Dublin City is the people who planned Dublin City hated Dublin. Mm. Yeah. No, really. Most of the Dublin City planners were from the country. Yeah. They didn't like the city. And they lived out in Stillorgan or Monkstown or Sutton. They didn't live in the city. And if you contrast that with, remember I was in Vienna a couple of months yeah. ago, that you've got a real sense of the people have a proprietorial sense of Vienna. They like it. They live there. They live above the shop. They live in the city. So you've got this sense of a whole thing working together. Whereas our city planners drove home every day. Yeah. And they drove into City Hall. And they drove into uh, Woodkey. Yes. And they drove home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they know love of the place. They actually hated the place. And if you hate the place, it's going to reflect in your planning. You've got to love the place and love the city and see what it can do. And the same goes for Cork, same goes for Limerick, same goes for any city, mm. Liverpool, Manchester, all those cities. The people who run the city actually need to love the place. How has it worked in Paris? Because Hidalgo, the mayor, came in and she was all into this idea of the 15-minute city and making it work. Yeah, and this has worked extremely well. I mean, Paris has always been a city that was lived in. 
because it was designed by a houseman in the 1860s and mm. those great boulevards were designed with, you know, eight stories of apartment blocks yes, over them. yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing about the, the Paris we see now, the beautiful Paris we see now, was the result of a massive raising of old Paris, which is quite right. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it has worked extremely well in the sense that lots more people are living in the city, Lots more people are cycling around the city. Lots more people are walking around the city, particularly around the Seine. I mean, if you were ever there years ago, it used to be like a motorway going mm. down the river. Yeah. Now they've all been closed off. There's beaches and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and again, what happens is if you give the right incentives, people change their behavior, right? There's a thing called Eric Lonergan talks about EPIC, which is extreme positive incentives for change. Remember I talked about ABBA's clothes? Yes, and... The platform boots, yes. right? Remember, okay. And there was the a outfits. tax relief on them. So ABBA used to wear platforms, not because they wanted an extra inch or two or five on their general demeanor, right? Yeah. It was because Sweden was so heavily taxed. There was a tax break on extravagant costumes for theatre. Right. Because the theatres lobbied, they said, look, we can't be putting on pantomimes and dressing up for the kids if you're going to not give us a break. Yeah. So theatres lobbied for a tax break. ABBA were earning so much money that they were trying to use every tax break not to pay tax. <laughs> so they went from being a band that was normally dressed yeah. right, to this over-the-top stuff because of a tax break. Yeah. Now, what that says is the people react to incentives. Now, imagine an extreme positive incentive. So you change the prices profoundly to reflect what you want to happen. Mm. So what you do is you subsidise houses, change the prices. Are you taxed driving? Change the prices. Are you give away, I think, for example, free public transport? Just give it away. Mm. Make it free. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the exchequer picks it up. Now, lots of cities have done that. If you deploy extreme positive incentives for change, you get change. And it happens really, really quite quickly. And that's what I think Ireland should do. Say, what do we want to do? Where do we want it? How do we go about it? And use the tax system. Because we use it for God knows everything else. When we were young, Dublin was falling down, right? Mm. There are loads and loads of photos online about Dublin. Yeah. And basically it looked like a set of broken teeth, right? <laughs> There was right. a building up here. There'd be two buildings leaning against each other like two old drunks, you know, yeah. with a girder between them so they didn't fall down, right? And then we introduced tax breaks in the 90s and you got apartments being built in town. Mm. Some of them were good, some of them were bad, but they were built, yeah. right? Could do the same thing. Tax breaks change behaviour. Humans change behaviour. We adapt, we adjust, we evolve, we move on. The way to reinvigorate the city is change prices change the facts on the ground, and then people change their behaviour. And you have a livable city. And you take back the streets from the bonnet and you give it to people. And that is the essence of the movement, John, called People, people Before, Before Bonnets. Bonnets. Talk to you next week. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.